Well, good morning. Thanks for being here today. If you're new with us, we want to say welcome. Thanks for joining us here at the Bible Chapel. And, and we're on the back end of our summer series that we've entitled Relevant Faith. And I mentioned this last week. If you've missed any of the four previous messages, we encourage you to go back because each message builds on one another. And I also want to let you know that Rod and I had the privilege this week to interview uh, Sean McDowell who co-wrote a couple of the books that we're recommending in the bookstore, and most recently, the, the book entitled So the Next Generation Will Know. And in that 30 minutes, we talked about that book, but also what God's doing through this Relevant Faith series. You can, you can get that podcast uh, right on our app. Go to Bible Chapel app, you can go to Sermons, and it's under the, this title for that podcast, Fresh Faith. Parents of the next generation, I encourage you to listen to that. Sean gives some really good insight uh, just through that podcast we had with him. All right, so there are some things in life that just seem to go together naturally. I'm all about food and sports, so I'm going to stay in those two lanes for a moment. Our daughter turns four today. Her go-to lunch is peanut butter and jelly, right? So good together, and if you're on a budget, it's great. Peanut butter and jelly. Hamburgers and french fries, right? They naturally go together. An American institution for cookouts. Hamburgers and french fries. And we go to sports. You know, Steelers kick off tonight. We have James Conner coming here next, uh, this Friday. You got to say, Pittsburgh Steelers and Super Bowls. They just seem to go together. That's three services in a row. The only time I'll get an applause is Pittsburgh Steelers. Or you could say, right, Cleveland Browns and losing seasons, right? (laughs) I could not pass this one up. I keep setting my DVR for the biggest loser, but it keeps recording the Cleveland Browns. Uh, Browns fans are like, we got Baker Mayfield. I might eat these words. OBJ's coming. I might eat those words. Then there are combinations that don't make sense, but they somehow coexist. I like this. I don't know about you. Chicken and waffles. Anybody like chicken and waffles? They they, they somehow work. You wouldn't think. Or here in Pittsburgh, french fries on salads. I say only Yinzers would take a healthy option and make it unhealthy, right? (laughs) Only we would do such a thing. But there are realities in life that are hard to grasp how they can somehow coexist. Two of those realities drive the question for relevant faith this weekend, why evil and suffering? These two realities that coexist are the hardest for many to comprehend a barrier for them is how does the sovereign God of the universe exist and the evil and suffering that is all around us every day. From the atrocities of the Holocaust to the terrorist attacks of 9-11, and this Wednesday marks 18 years since 9-11. The school shootings, I remember, what I can remember, the first one, Columbine, through Sandy Hook, and now they happen with such frequency on the world scene. From the aftermath of Katrina to most recently, right, the aftermath of Dorian, 
hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, earthquakes. There are natural disasters occurs around our world, again, with too much frequency. From the inconvenience of seasonal allergies to the devastating disease of cancer. From the sudden, quick impact of a heart attack to the gradual, slow decline of ALS. Personal pain and suffering are constant reminders that, that things, that they're just not the way we think they should be. Sometimes we just see it in the news or, or pops up on social media, but sooner or later, pain and suffering creeps into our homes as everyone here has their own story of pain and suffering. For our family, uh, it was four years ago when we were living in Forest Hills, still in Wilkinsburg, and I'll never forget sitting on our couch and my, my wife walking down the stairs saying, I just talked to Jay, her brother. Lissa has breast cancer. Our sister-in-law at 27 years old, diagnosed with breast cancer, goes through a year of chemo, radiation, surgery, then two and a half years declared clean. This past March, thinking, thinking she's going for that final scan that she has to take, and instead the doctor says cancer is back. This time, immediately declared stage four. Sometimes, as finite human beings, we struggle with this question that, to be honest, we, we may never fully understand. Why evil and suffering? But as we'll see in Scripture today, God has not left us blind in this area, and he absolutely has not left us without hope. As we dig in to that question today, we're going to look at these four areas the views of evil and suffering, the origin of evil, the nature of evil, and then most importantly, what is the remedy? Father, we come before you, thankful each time we can gather as one body across all our campuses, those joining us online, to gather to worship you, to sing songs of praise, to have our children and teenagers being fed the word of God, and now to hear from you. God, we say it every time, we have nothing to say unless it comes from you. God, especially today, there are many, I'm sure, listening who are dealing with tough, tough things. My words have zero power to bring comfort. So God, I pray as always that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be honoring and pleasing to you, O oh God. We commit this time to you now in Christ's name. Amen. Most agree there are three overarching views when it comes to evil in relation to God. There is pantheism that affirms God but denies evil. Opposite is atheism that affirms evil, but denies God. Then there is theism, that's where Christianity falls, that affirms both God and evil, they coexist. Pantheism 
is basically the, 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 the view that everything is God. Therefore, evil is just an illusion of our mind. Polytheism means there are many gods, and pantheism is like polytheism on steroids. Basically, everything is God. I'm a God, you're a God, the chair you're sitting in is God, the stage is God. Therefore, there can't be evil because everything is God. But, but we can rule that one out quickly. Through experience, through the visible evil we see each day, through our pain and suffering, the persistence of evil, we roll out pantheism quickly. Now the atheist, again, is opposite and says that evil is real, but God is not. But, but the problem is, an atheist has no solid ground to proclaim something to be evil. We can, you can go back to sermons one and two on absolute truth and does God exist where we hit this further, but for, for someone to say that something is evil, they have to have some objective standard of good. If all we are is material and we are subjective in our view of evil, who is to say what is good and what is evil? How can material proclaim the truth of immaterial morality. Therefore, if you say something is good, there must be an objective moral law. And every law has a lawgiver. Well, if it can't be you or I or any other human being, there's only one place to go. So those who say that evil disproves God, it's actually the opposite. The only way you can proclaim evil is an objective standard pointing back to God. Without God, who is to say what Hitler did in Nazi Germany was evil? If he subjectively believed in his followers that creating this ideal human race was right and good, who, who can say that is wrong without an objective standard above us? C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist for years, says this, when I was an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust but how did I even get this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. The reasonable view of evil is that God and evil do coexist. So the real question is this. If the God of the Bible is all good, all knowing, all powerful, all loving, all just, then why is there evil? and suffering in the world. Well, let's begin with this. What does scripture say about the origin of evil? We learn from scripture that God has created all things and all things that he creates is good. And among his creation, he created two entities that he gifted with eternity. Angels, supernatural heavenly beings who carry out his will in us, the human race. And we can infer from scripture that God chose to give these two eternal creations a will of their own. And in Genesis chapter one, we begin scripture not with the beginning of evil, but with the presence of evil. Man is innocent and the devil is already on the scene. The serpent is there. Satan, opposed to God, committed to deceive man. Now, now, now how did Satan get to this state? Well, we, we just get a small glimpse in scripture of what happened in Satan. We read in Revelation there was a war in heaven. Some angels chose to stick with God. Others chose to oppose God, and they were cast 
out of heaven. We see this in Revelation chapter 12, verses seven through nine. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Isaiah 14 describes what many believe the cause of Satan's downfall. What happened with Satan that caused this downfall? This is what Isaiah 14 says, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, in the Hebrew, that word means Lucifer, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. I will make myself equal with you, God. So before Genesis 1... Satan, exiled from heaven, and ever since, has tried to lead the world astray. His first two targets are the first two human beings, Adam and Eve, whom God, in Genesis, put in a perfect environment, in in perfect relationship with him, and he gave them crystal clear instructions. Genesis 2, 16 and 17, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We read in Genesis 3, with a will of their own, man sinned when Adam and Eve were deceived by Satan, and they chose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because God cannot lie, Death entered the human race. The curse of sin came upon God's creation. In their disobedience, Adam and Eve rebelled against God. Sin entered the human race. We call this original sin. And as Romans 5.12, which is the proof text of that, also says that since them, Adam and Eve, we are now an imputation of sin. We are born into sin like poison into a stream. It goes through now all humanity. Romans 5.12, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. This is why David in the psalm says that he was sinful upon conception. We are born sinners. Parents, this is why we don't have to train our two-year-olds to disobey, right? Our son is 16 months old. He had some development issues, so we had a specialist work with him, and uh, she was asking how he's doing, and how does he respond to words? And I can easily say, well, he doesn't respond well to no. Already, we still have one of those VCR DVD combos, and at 16 months, he's putting his pretzel sticks in there. I say, Joel, no turns, gives me the smirk, right? Shoves it right back in. (laughs) It comes natural. We have a sin nature at the core. Now, Now, some at this point might say, why didn't God just create us without the ability to sin, without the ability to do evil? Well, then you're asking God to make you a robot. 
Because you can't have the freedom to choose to do good and yet not have the freedom then to choose to do wrong. Alvin Plantinga puts it this way in God, Freedom, and Evil, to create creatures capable of moral good. Therefore, he must create creatures capable of moral evil. He can't give these creatures the freedom to perform evil and at the same time prevent them from doing so. The fact that free creatures sometimes go wrong, however, counts neither against God's omnipotence, his power, nor against his goodness. For he could have forestalled the occurrence of moral evil only by also removing the possibility of moral good. There is no logical incompatibility, Plantinga says, between God and the presence of evil in the world. By our sin, man separated themselves from God, who is only and fully good. This helps us begin to grasp the nature of evil, which we're going to look at now. Evil in and of itself is not a thing or substance. Instead, it's a twisting of what is good, or, or it's a lack of what is good. Augustine put it this way, evil is a real lack, privation, or corruption of a good thing. The, the closest illustration I can come up with is evil is like rust to a car. Rust is, is a corruption of a good thing, iron. But rust does not exist in and of itself. It comes from the lack of good. Nonetheless, rust is real. Just as evil is real. Evil, the corruption of what God created as good. Man chose to go away from God's standard, which is purely good. Therefore, we own our fallen nature. We do not, cannot blame God. With that said, as finite, sinful human beings, we will always struggle to grasp how God is all sovereign, yet man is responsible for the things we do. But they both coexist. And the best way I can put this in my finite ability is God in his sovereignty permits the possibility of evil, but he does not produce evil. Most agree there are three categories when it comes to evil. Moral, natural, and Satan himself. Moral evil includes the evil and suffering we bring upon ourselves through our sinful actions, our activity, our choices, what we do to one another. Murder, robbery, rape, adultery, jealousy, greed. We can be here all day going through the things we do to one another. Natural evil includes the suffering we endure, which is not due to direct human involvement. Hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, Droughts, the, the whole created order we, we see corresponds to reality that it's all out of kilter in some sense. Romans 8.22, for we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Some theologians put natural evil on man, saying it came from the fall of man. Others say, no, no, it came really from the angelic fall with Satan and the fallen angels. But we would all agree, natural evil exists. The third means is the devil himself. Scripture is clear that Satan is still under the sovereignty and authority of God. There is nothing he can do without being under his sovereignty. Including God does not give us the option to say I had no power 
over Satan. He says he will always give us a way to escape. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will always provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. With that said, scripture says, take Satan seriously. He does bring calamity in this world. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Even with that biblical foundation on the origin and the nature of evil, again, humanity will always question why God would permit evil and suffering in the first place. Could God, could God have created us in the manner that we were forced to follow him, forced to worship him? I would have to say absolutely, he's God. But I wanna ask you, is that really what you desire? Because in my limited knowledge, my limited understanding, forced love is not really love at all. When Kristen and I got married 12 and a half years ago, the fact that she chose this crazy Italian over all the other men out there created a richness in our love that wasn't forced. The fact that over 12 and a half years, God has taken me from engineering into sales, into ministry, We were blessed to be in Wilkinsburg for five plus years and back to the South Hills, ups and downs and challenges through it all. But our choice to stay committed to one another has only made us stronger, made that love rich like no other relationship we have. God and his love for you desires for you to honor him, you to choose to follow him. And it's no mistake that in Ephesians 5, he says his son, Jesus Christ, is the bridegroom and his church is his bride. Christ chose us by taking on our sin, dying on the cross for our evil. And he desires his church now to seek after him. I'd have to say, again, in my limited understanding, that I did not desire God to make me a robot. I'm thankful he didn't. But honestly, seriously, who am I to question the sovereign God who is greater than me and he is the creator of me? As Paul says in Romans 9, 20, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this. The game changer in all of this, though, is the remedy of evil. If tonight you went to bed, you woke up at 2 a.m., there is smoke throughout your room. Flames are everywhere. And the phone rings. The person on the phone says this. I'll give you two options. I can tell you with 100% clarity how the fire started, or I could tell you right now with 100% clarity how to escape. Which one would you choose? No brainer, right? But 
we often demand clarity on the why of evil and suffering. Tell me why when God has given us complete 100% clarity on the remedy. Because if I could have the choice to know the full scope of why evil and suffering or the full complete answer of the remedy of evil and suffering, I'll take the latter every single time. And scripture is crystal clear on the remedy of evil and suffering. Many would say the remedy is this. You probably hear it often. God, if he really loved us, would just remove evil and suffering from the world. Well, there's a lot of misconceptions there and misunderstandings as well. In that question or statement, you're almost setting a double standard for God. You're saying, God, I want you here when it comes to evil and suffering because we can't rid the world of it. I want you here. But yet, if you don't operate in the manner that I desire, I want your understanding here. I want you to tell me exactly why on my level so I can have complete understanding. I don't know about you, but I don't want God like any of us. I want him here far greater than who we are, the things we do. And in order to have him here, there's a level of understanding that we may never know. And when you say, God, please rid the world of all evil and suffering, do you really know what you're asking him to do? Because that also leads to a biblical misunderstanding of what is evil and also a misconception that everything we do with suffering is meaningless. If God were to destroy all evil, it would include you and I. We would all be wiped out. Remember, unlike our relativistic culture of today that is very subjective, true for you, not for me, a morality, God does not operate that way. He was very objective when it comes to morality, and he says with absolute clarity, there is no one who can meet his standard. Romans chapter three says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. I think he's making it clear. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together, they've become worthless. That doesn't mean God doesn't love you, care for you, desire your heart. That means your righteous acts are worthless in order to meet the objective standard of God. No one does good, and in case we didn't get it yet, not even one. That's why the Bible says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God of God. If God was to rid the world of evil, we'd be going with it. Therefore, we should praise God in his mercy and grace that he has yet to pour out his full wrath and justice on the evil in this world. Now, why hasn't God done that yet? Why hasn't God poured out his wrath on all evil, including mankind. Peter gives us a glimpse in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as we often think he is, but is patient towards you. Why? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter says God holds back his justice and wrath so that 
we have time to turn back to him, to repent of our sin, to trust in his son. We should thank God for his mercy and grace. His mercy shown in not giving what we actually deserve, judgment and separation from him for eternity because of our sin and his full grace in giving us what we don't deserve, the remedy for the evil and suffering in our world, the remedy for our sin, his son, Jesus Christ. You see, only Jesus do we see the fullness of God's grace and justice come together. When you're in Christ, you experience the fullness of God's grace, and because you're in Christ and because of Jesus, we do not experience the fullness of God's wrath and justice because he put it on his son. If you're going through a painful time right now, Jesus is one who understands suffering. He went to the cross, fully God, fully man. He took on the sin of the world. He died a horrific death. And as we said last week, Christianity is the only religion that you truly contest. Why? Because we cling to an individual who actually existed in history. If he was never born, never died, never rose again, we are wasting our time. But as we looked at last week, even the non-Christian sources all say this dude lived, he was crucified, and the early church proclaims he resurrected from the dead. Jesus gives us the hope. Jesus is the clear remedy to the evil and suffering in our world. That's why when someone trusts in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, the Bible says you become a new creation spiritually. If anyone is in Christ, Paul says, they're a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. You see, Jesus is the ultimate example of God allowing evil and suffering for his good. The suffering of his son for the goodness of our redemption back to him. I wanna to end today by looking at four promises for believers in Jesus Christ in the midst of our suffering because we are not immune. A believer is going to have battles, is going to have struggles. And if you have never trusted in Christ, I can't say this of you. I can't honestly say this of you. For those who have trusted in Jesus, here is the promises of scripture in the midst of the struggles we still have in this life. Here's the first one. In Christ, your present suffering can't touch your eternal security in Jesus Christ. John 10, 28, 29, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. Romans 8, 38 through 9, for I am sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else of all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Company restructuring may take your job. Cancer may take your body. And the scripture says when it comes to your soul, nothing can touch it. You are eternally secure in Jesus Christ. No doubt 
where you will spend eternity. Evil and suffering can't touch that. In Christ, you are eternally secure. And that's why I can say, only believers then can truly say, my present suffering has purpose. Only in Jesus can we say that God has a purpose in what we experience. Did God allow suffering as part of his judgment? Yes, absolutely. And he also uses suffering in our life to shape our character, to build our faith. I think of James who wrote up to a bunch of scattered, beat up believers, and he says this in James 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let that steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's why the believer can say, we know that in all things, not just the good stuff, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. That means that intimate relationship, a trust in him, who have been called according to his purpose. I think of a boxer. The new believer is that amateur boxer. And with every battle, with every blow, God is making you wiser, stronger, and building you up to be a heavyweight champion in Jesus. Making you more and more and more like his son. This does not mean believers don't suffer, grieve, mourn, doubt, have questions, but man, we can always go back to Christ, that even when we don't understand our present circumstance, we know God does. And we know that he promises he will never leave our side. That's the third thing. In Christ, our present suffering is comforted by the presence of God. In Wilkinsburg, the first ministry we started was a mentoring ministry because too many children grow up without the presence of their dad, without the presence of their mom. God is always with his children. There is no moment that he's not with you. Hebrews 13.5 reminds us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Psalm 3418, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. As Peter said back in that first Peter 5 section, cast all your anxieties on him. He cares for you. And as believers, we live in what we call the already not yet state of victory. Meaning this, scripture says, death and sin has been defeated once and for all in Jesus Christ. And we still operate in a world full of evil and suffering. We already know the end game. We already know that we are victorious, but we still operate in the world of today. But we know one day, one day, when you breathe your last breath, you will be in the presence of God. And we know that scripture says one day, God's gonna make all things new through his son. That's why in Christ, our present suffering is surpassed by our guaranteed victory in Jesus. John witnessed this in the book of Revelation when he was revealed, a picture of that new heaven and earth to come. One day, evil and suffering will 
end. We have that promise. Revelation 21, 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither thou shalt there should be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Next week, we're gonna talk about the reality of heaven and hell. Do you know with absolute certainty if you were to breathe your last breath today, where you would spend eternity? We want you to know God loves you. So much he sent his son Jesus to die for you on the cross. He, he might not give you all the answers you desire for the things you're experiencing right now on this side of heaven, but he has given you crystal clarity on the remedy for your soul. That's his son, Jesus Christ. And only through Jesus can a person in this life actually have absolutely, be absolutely certain about the most important area of their life, where you're gonna spend eternity. Do you have that certainty in your life? Can you say, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, thanks be to God. In the midst of all I experience, thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see this question, why evil and suffering? I, I can't, I can't, I'm not gonna try to, as a finite, sinful human being, answer that question with absolute clarity. To, to ease, make you feel better, when I don't have the fullness. I, I got enough from God to understand the origin of evil, the nature of evil, but, but the fullness of that, that's God. Who am I? But I can tell you with absolute clarity the remedy. That only in Christ, only in Christ can you say when it comes to evil and suffering, I have victory. I have victory in Jesus Christ. When our sister-in-law was diagnosed back in March uh, for the second time, she, she went down that dark road and uh, Kristen's brother Jay once again with cancer. Uh, just a few weeks ago, she finished all of that and they were gonna do a final scan to see if surgery was needed again and we praise God that right now there's no evidence left of the cancer. But... Uh, even, uh, even before Lissa went to that appointment, she made this post online because she, it's been amazing how God uses our suffering. She's been featured on Allegheny Health Network in commercials. She's on the front cover now of their breast cancer pamphlet division. She has so many followers on Facebook and Instagram through this journey. And before she went to that final scan, she wanted to make sure she posted this statement. So people knew, regardless again of what happens with this scan, you know where I stand when it comes to Christ. Here's what she wrote. We have been grieved for so many in our lives the past few years, not just ourselves. There's so much suffering and devastation that happens over a lifetime. Death, illness, addiction, divorce, miscarriage, poverty, abuse, estrangement. It is enough to cause striking pain, even to those standing on the sidelines feeling so helpless and just wanting to do something. Many people have made comments about how normal, stable, calm we are in the face of so much instability and uncertainty that sometimes they forget all that is happening behind the photos 
and closed doors week and week, right? Let's just say, look, we don't got it all together. I still have doubts. I still have fears. But fast forward in her statement, here's what she says. I am stable and secure for this reason, though, because we don't need anything external to change to experience inner peace. And she says, let me say this one more time, puts it all caps. We don't need anything external to change to experience inner peace. Why is that, Lissa? Because we rest in eternal certainty and the promise of Romans 8, that all things are working together for our good, that nothing can separate me. Cancer cannot separate me from the love of Christ. And I am, and you are already a conqueror through him. I know many here today and those joining us online are experiencing pain and suffering and dark circumstance. I make sure, I've learned through experience, that when I meet someone traveling down a path, I avoid saying, I know what you're experiencing. I know how you feel, because I don't. We all have our own journey with suffering and pain. And even if I've traveled a similar road, I'm not wired like you, the way you experience pain, the way you experience suffering. I know some of you are here today traveling that road. God on this side of heaven might not give us again all the the answers we desire, but he has given us the ultimate remedy in his son. He's asking you today to come to him with your questions, with your doubt, with your pain. He's saying, cast those anxieties on me. I care for you so much I sent my son to die for you. That when this life is over, which is short, as we'll talk about next week in light of eternity, you can know for certain that when you breathe your last breath that you will spend eternity with me, no more suffering, no more pain. That's why Lissa can say, when people have asked her, cancer twice before you even hit 30 and you still can praise your God? She says, yes, I can. Is he still worthy of your praise? He is. Only the believer can say that because we know with certainty what happens when this life is over. As believers as well, let us model for a watching world. Again, we grieve. That's why we have the body of Christ too, to pray for one another, to lean on one another. But man, but when, when the watching world sees you go through things but respond differently, they're gonna ask you, what, what, what's up with you? What's different about you? Because no matter what I experience in this life, I have absolute certainty where I'm gonna spend eternity in Jesus Christ. So if you wanna ask me, is God still worthy of my praise? I'm gonna say with confidence, he is.